You're listening to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting stories from people all over the world working to change our planet for the better. I'm Lyle, and this week we speak to Sarah and Daniel, the founders of Peru Eco Expeditions, an ecotourism company based in Cusco, Peru, that specialize in luxury, customized, and sustainable expeditions. Now, we spent some time with Sarah and Daniel, not only in the jungle, but also in the mountains, and these guys are passionate eco warriors and experts on sustainable travel. So as we sat by this huge, gorgeous waterfall in the Amazon cloud forest, we recorded this podcast and captured their thoughts on Peru's tourist challenges, potential solutions, and how to take matters into your own hands. Enjoy and feel free to follow along or jump ahead using the show notes on our website at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Sarah and Daniel, thank you so much for having us here in your beautiful country. This is the most incredible place. We've had such a, an amazing time exploring with you. Can we start from the beginning? Can you each tell us where you're from? Where did you grow up? And what got you here to Peru? Well, first, you're so welcome. We had a fantastic time with both of you. And we love showing people our beautiful places that we constantly visit. My name is Sarah Bustamante, and I was actually born in Missouri in the United States, which is right smack dab in the middle. And uh, my father joined the military when I was very young. And so I've actually traveled all over. I spent the majority of my childhood in Europe, living in Germany. And then I went to high school in Tokyo. And then I lived in Honolulu, Hawaii for 14 years and then have lived permanently in Peru for the last three years. My name is Daniel Bustamante. I'm uh, born and raised in Cusco and uh, I'm really passionate about the rainforest. This is one of our favorite places to come. I've been working in tourism for the, at least 20 years. <laughs> Manu was one of the places that captivated my heart and I literally spent more than 10 years just living in the rainforest in Manu and it is one of our great passions here. I was first involved just with tourism and then after a few years I wanted to give something back to this beautiful area so I got involved in conservation and sustainable development and that was like very interesting too. It was kind of an eye-opener to see like how much help this place needs. Was that the, do you think, the early seed and what got you interested in sustainability as a concept? I had always that connection with nature. As a child, my father is an agronomist engineer and he used to go to the field a lot, to the countryside, and I will always tag along and like go visit the farms and learn about the people in the countryside. And I was always playing outside. And so that connection was always there. And definitely I felt that there was something missing because you cannot just go and enjoy these places and pretty much utilize and take advantage of it without giving anything back. So in like later years when I was more conscious about the things that we do and how we create impacts, I said I really have to give back something to this place. So that really is the reason why I started to do sustainability and conservation with the oh, other organization. Cool. And Sarah, you've, you've had a long career in the tourism industry as well. Why were you attracted to the tourism industry in the first place? 
Ironically, because I lived in Honolulu when I graduated college, my background is in ethnic studies and anthropology. I didn't actually choose to get involved with tourism. Um, I was kind of pushed into it because that's the main uh, industry in Hawaii in general. And then um, I excelled in it and I kept uh, getting promoted and getting really good jobs. And I gained so much vital experience working within that industry that really set me up to do exactly what we're doing now. And all of your expeditions seem to involve nature in some way, which I guess is not hard when you have incredible places like Manu and the mountains around Cusco. But I'm curious, and you've touched on it already, Daniel, but maybe you can elaborate a bit more about why nature is important to you guys. Why do you build it into so many of your expeditions as such a core feature? So I think it really came from both of our childhoods. Um, for example, we were raised globally in this global world and uh, thanks to my mother actually is every single weekend we were not in the house. We were out hiking, exploring, skiing, anything that involved the outdoors, that's what we were doing all the time constantly and in multiple different countries and we traveled. We had a, I had a really, really great childhood and I think that being raised in that type of family and having that ingrained when you're so small is extremely important to the type of person that you end up becoming. We believe that incorporating all the different habitats and ecosystems and climates that Peru has, it's very important to showcase the diversity of the country. Peru has 84 life zones out of like 114 that there are in the world. And then by visiting all these different beautiful places, you are also getting to know the different cultures that have developed in specific regions like in the coast, in the high Andes and in the rainforest. And then the influence that you have in the culture and the cuisine and the architecture and everything is it's really unique. So it's a nice combination of everything. When you are immersed in nature, you can actually regain that connection and be sensible and sensitive to all the things that are happening around you and not feel too completely disconnected and like, you know, just grab your cell phone and ask the internet for an answer. And you guys have a daughter. What would your message be to parents? Do you think maybe kids are missing something in their exploration of the world? I think that the trend that's starting to happen now is to raise your child with a lot of electronics, uh, a lot of television, a lot of YouTube videos. And I think that what it's doing is creating a disconnect with your child with nature. And we think that it's vital, not just for your child, but to raise a global citizen that's aware of nature and to keep that connectivity. So that's what we enjoy doing is I feel like when people come and they experience our programs that we put together we're really creating a spark mm -hmm. and how is this trip to Peru which for most people is a once-in-a-lifetime experience how is that going to have a ripple effect to their children to their friends to their family to their future moving forward uh, and now what we usually do with people who love nature and love the wild we ask about your favorite or most memorable moment in nature? All right, so this is a, a really good one. Uh, I used to... <laughs> That's a strong I, opening. <laughs> <laughs> when I was uh, finishing my studies, I, I was really lucky to secure a job as a manager inside the only lodge at the time inside the Manu River at Manu Park. 
I was living in this lodge right next to a lake and every morning I used to go paddle on the lake in this little canoe just to do some exercise and then there was a family of giant river otters living there wow. and it was like the fun thing to do you know you go paddle and you just follow the otters and watch them fish and you know it's an amazing uh, nature show and so I was like going really fast because I saw them at the other end of the lake so I was going towards them and by the time I was going to get closer they took off and I saw that there was like a, a pygmy kingfisher perched on the tree that was catching the fish that were like scared by the otters, you know. So I like approached really slowly to try to take a picture of this little kingfisher. I'm going backwards in the canoe with the camera trying to take a picture, the perfect angle of this little bird. And then all of a sudden I hear like a little movement in the forest because I was really close to the lakeshore and so I was sweating and I couldn't see and I was trying to take the picture so I decided to wash my face with the lake water you know and then as I'm like getting down to wash my face I see something like standing up in the forest and so I was like wash my face really quickly and I looked properly and then all of a sudden I see this jaguar like oh! was like probably three or four meters away from me and I was what? like so vulnerable and then he goes and takes his head out behind the little bush he was hiding and looks at me. Eye to eye contact. No. I was like, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm dead. dead. <laughs> this is it, you know. Like, it's that close. Yeah, so it was like really scary. And then I had put, you know, insect repellent with my sweat, all the like sweat was getting into my eyes. I couldn't see and I was like, should I move or not move? What do I do? What do I do? I washed my face. So when I was going down again to wash my face, I saw the jaguar just like, poof, poof. I didn't even see it. I just heard two like small sounds in the forest and the leaf. Wow. And I was like, what? Oh, an thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was really, really nice. He'd already munched on an, on a, on okay, an I think I think he was just like, you know, playing with the others because the jaguars are top predators in the forest and the giant otters are top predators in the water. Like not even anacondas will mess up with them because, really? you know, like they, they are like pretty nasty. The local name for the giant river otters is uh, river wolf because they're always in packs. And if there's something going on to one of the members, the other ones will attack you like wolves, you know? Wow. Like, wow. I, I think yeah. I've even se seen a video of a group of river otters going at a caiman. Like, oh, yes. So yes. they do that. That's they insane. Do that, yeah. Actually, on that same lodge, there was a huge caiman called Clotilde. And Clotilde was missing one leg because she had eaten one of the other babies. And then the other the family went and attacked her. No. Left her with a, you know, chopped limb and tribes coming out, flooding upside down. But caimans are reptiles and those animals are like so strong. Like a month later, she was back, you know? And then she wow, missed wow. a leg and then that recovered her spot. And then like, you know, I don't think she messes up with others. <laughs> 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 she learned her lesson. Yeah. Wow, I had yeah. no idea. Because yeah. you were saying actually the other day that they get as big as a, as a man. Like, yeah, yeah, like uh, five foot or something or six. Seven, seven feet. Seven feet. Seven feet tall or long, you know, from head yeah. to tail. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? When I was like in about sixth grade, uh, National Geographic did a special on Manu National Park. Ooh. And I fell in love at that point 
with uh, scarlet macaws and they had these beautiful pictures of all different types of macaws that congregate at the Claylix. So for my amazing experience was uh, the very first time that I actually came to Manu and got to experience the wonder of the macaws at the Claylix. And you found a husband too, right? And yeah. I, happened, I also happened to meet my husband. I guess an extra bonus. Yeah. And, and, and then the calls are like a, s- a symbol of unity, right? Because they are, we were just saying this, they're like a monogamous bird, right? They, yeah. s- they have one partner. Correct. That's so special. What do you think your daughter would say? What do you think would be her favorite place or most impressive experience? She is in love. Last year we took her, or was it this year? No, last year. We took a trip to Choquequira, which is kind of like off the beaten path archaeological site, kind of like setting the same as Machu Picchu, but you drop two kilometers and you come up two kilometers again. And like the whole trail is like 25 kilometers, you know. But so, it's literally straight down, straight, straight up. up. It's wow. very tough. And we were like really concerned about our daughter making it and enjoying it. So we actually hired a horse for her. She named her horse Spirit. Oh. oh no, Alcon! And Alcon was like the love of her life, you know? And she's oh. like, oh, I miss Alcon, I want to ride Alcon, so that probably will be one of her favorite stories. She like drew us this picture of Alcon, and then she constantly asked, Mom, like, are we going to go visit Alcon? So she oh. really bonded with this trekking horse that she oh. was riding for four days. So you guys are a sustainable tour operator. I wonder if you can just elaborate on how you've built sustainability into Peru Eco Expeditions. When we moved back to Peru in 2015, I feel like we we didn't really brand ourselves as sustainable because to us it's not something that you can actually create. It's just who we are as people. And so, of course, when we created our agency and we started more of the hands-on operation, um, just in every single aspect that we do from administration all the way through our operation, it's always how do we reduce our waste. We decided early on that Peru standard salary for their employees is really low, so we pay our staff above what they would normally get with other agencies. We decided to buy local. We decided to really reduce plastic consumption. Um, So for example, one of the big things we do, which is a lot of work on our side, is for all of the lunches, for all of our tours, um, we have plastic Tupperware containers um, that we rewash. In our tours, we give people plastic bottles that we refill the water and then we rewash and reuse those. To us, it kind of came naturally because we ourselves are always in the environment and immersed in these beautiful places and it's just like a second nature. It goes back to respect. You respect yourself, you respect the environment, the culture you're in, the people that you hire. Um, What is your impact going to be on the places that you're visiting with the tourists who've, who've paid a lot of money to have these wonderful experiences? We want them to come to our country and appreciate it, and we don't want them to come and see the trash problem, which unfortunately is a huge problem in Peru. And we just wish that other operators would just follow suit into that kind of conscious change that's now happening globally, that we love seeing that more and more people are getting involved in and uh, being aware that this is, this is a change that is coming and it has been coming for a long time and it needs to happen. I wonder if you could explain why sustainability is important to you. It's about 
conservation and preservation of some of the most beautiful places in the entire world. People travel here internationally from all over the world to visit our places. And unfortunately, because I've been coming here for almost 10 years and Daniel born and raised here, some of the destinations are worse off now than they were 10, 15 years ago because there's more people, there's more garbage, there's more impact, there's erosion. So we want to kind of change the dynamic and go forward instead of moving backward as a society and, and as the tourism industry. From a, a tour operator's perspective, you've touched on how you manage your waste, fair wages, but what do you think it takes for someone to be a sustainable traveler? I know that we've touched upon this uh, a little bit before, but I think the most important thing and where it starts is being an educated consumer. So whether you're buying a tour package or a day trip, or you're just doing research um, to go travel on your own to a destination, I think that it's very important for people to learn about the culture, what behavior is acceptable in the areas that you're visiting, what is the local policies make less of a footprint going in than coming out you if you have trash you know a lot of times like you can't even throw it in the trash can because there's not proper garbage disposal so if you take something into a sacred environment or the rainforest carry it out and dispose of it back in a city where you know it's going to end up properly um, or be recycled. I just really think that it's up to the travelers to select operators that are operating legally, that pay their taxes, and especially when you travel to places like Peru, where there's different political issues here and the way that the businesses are run are very different than like the US and Western Europe. So you don't always know if you're booking through an operator that is legally licensed, even if they have a store, you know, or even if they have a shop, a lot of those agencies in Cusco are not properly licensed. I think just take a little bit of extra time to research where you're going, who you're going with, what your impact is going to be, and then leave the area cleaner than how you found it. A few days ago, we were at Human Tie with you guys, which was an unbelievable experience. But there are a few issues there that relate to what you were just saying, Sarah. I wonder if you can talk us through what the problems at Human Tie are. Human Tie became extremely popular at the very beginning of 2017. So a little bit over, like about a year and a half ago, we were the very first operator to offer Human Tie as a day trip from Cusco. So historically, Human Tie was visited by the Salkan Tai trekkers, and they would use it as an acclimatization hike. So that received very few people, a manageable amount that didn't have a lot of impact on the trail and the lake itself. So what happened was when we started selling Human Tie as a destination, um, a few of our photos went viral on social media. More than a few. More than a few. <laughs> um, so Daniel's a great photographer, by the way. Yeah, Daniel does take phenomenal photos for the good and the bad, clearly. Yeah. Um, so once a bunch of our photos started going viral, these uh, smaller agencies in Cusco started stealing our photos. And then within two months of when we had first put this on our website, our photos with the tour selling Human Tie as a day trip was literally in every single small travel agency that are located all around the Plaza de Armas in Cusco. Now, unfortunately, with that type of travel service, those are the ones that are not legal and they 
operate pool service. So basically, they all attract people and then they sell them, they pack them in huge buses and they send them in mass herds to different locations. And overnight, it seems like this location went from having very few trekkers to hundreds per day. So what's happened is now they're busing in all these people. There's not enough restroom facilities. They have trail erosion now because a lot of the hikers can't make it. So now the mule activity has increased tenfold. There's just devastating impacts. The, the behavior of the people up there, they're blasting radios, they're skinny dipping, they're taking nude photos, they're droning the place. They're doing all of these things that are extremely disrespectful, especially since this was a sacred location to the Inca, probably to pre-Incan cultures as well, because it's a glacier lake. So it is the primary water source for all of the villages that are farther down. And even now it is the primary water source for Soray Pampa. It's so interesting when we went with you guys to look at the lake as a whole, and it's kind of like a little mini representation of where the world is at today, isn't it? You look up at the glacier and you see it melting because of climate change and because of the noise impact of the tourists there. And then you look down and you just see the most incredible, beautiful lake that is actually hard to believe that it's even real. And then there's tourists and there are just <laughs> hundreds of them making a noise, making a mess. And if those people on the other side of that lake of the glacier just were a little bit more conscious or a lot more conscious of the environment that they're in, this beautiful, magical, sacred place, and their direct impact that you can actually see visibly on the other side of the lake. Yeah, no, I think that uh, definitely human tie can be used as uh, another prime example of the government waiting for a disaster to happen. And there is enough flow of people that can generate an economic income for the government so then they were going to start to regulate and start doing things that try and put it up in the right path, when in reality that should have happened from the very beginning to establish the rules of the game and then the impact is not created. Totally. And obviously you guys are, it's very clear you're not against tourism. Obviously you want yeah. tourists to come here and see these beautiful places, but you yeah. want it to be done correctly and you want the, the government to step in and help. And, and also I think like with everything in the world, like everything is balance. So I think it's very important to note that like we do need tourists. Tourists is, is the main industry in Cusco, um, but there has to be that caring capacity and cannot be allowed to be exceeded. And unfortunately, because at a government level, in any higher level, it is all about the money. So for example, in Humantai, the municipality that governs the usage of human tie is called Moyapata. And every tourist is required to pay an entrance fee. So this community is just seeing it as their own personal cash cow without the conscious knowledge of, oh, well, if we let X amount of people in, this is the devastating effect that it's gonna have. So we would like if somehow with our influence, maybe with other agencies who also sell this sustainably could get together and, uh, and meet with the, the municipality and discuss this with them. But it's really hard because at the end of the day, it always seems that money wins, you know, and it's really unfortunate. They should just limit it and charge more, right? Exactly. That would be one way to do it, to get the same amount and of money at the end of the day. Absolutely. And we were just, when we were talking about Machu Picchu and how they, I think it was, was it UNESCO who 
UNESCO, yeah. Yes. UNESCO had uh, suggested back in 2009 when the first regulations started to take place to the top destination in South America. Machu Picchu and the Inca Trail were not regulated properly until 2009 where people could go and do whatever they wanted on the Inca Trail, camp whatever, you know, like cut the forest and make fires. It is not until 2009 that there was enough cash flow for the government to intervene and do all these regulations. And also UNESCO said if you do not step and take control of the situation, you're going to lose the World Heritage, you know, uh, status. nomination mm. status that, that it had. At that stage, was it 2,000? They recommended 2,000 or 2,000? They recommended 2,200 something, let's say 2,300. And then the government did 2,500. 2,500 <laughs> tourists a day. Tourists per a day, day going into Machu Picchu directly. And how many are going in today? Fast it forward was, almost 10 years. Okay, fast forward, then you had the situation where it was well known that in July, June, July, August, you had five to 6,000 people a day visiting Machu Picchu. More than double of what UNESCO had suggested. If you go on their website today to buy tickets, they're selling 3,500 per time slot. Oh, that's right. When they were having five, 6,000 people per day, legally on the government website, which is quote unquote, the only place where you could buy the ticket, the maximum was 2,500. So you're double ticketing, so double, double ticketing, you know, a lot of corruption, a lot of corruption getting people in, the extra money that they were making. Wow. It was ridiculous. So it has now been increased to 3,500 per time slot. And which there's is two now time slots. Seven, two times, yeah, yeah, which is now 7,000 people per day. Okay. So any human being who, can who do math. looks at the number, very simplistic mathematical equations, will realize that, in fact, this is for monetary reasons. And this has nothing to do with preservation or conservation of the site at all. So what would you guys suggest as a traveler to... Peru, would it be better to come, definitely still come and maybe just give Machu Picchu a rest <laughs> and go and see one of the other amazing things that you can see here just for a while until the message is made or unless it, until it's clear that this is like not a sustainable way to do it. You know what, I think ideally that would be wonderful, but the reality of the situation is that people are first attracted to come to Peru to see Machu Picchu. It's many, many people's lifetime dreams to come see it. And I don't think that that would happen. But what is ironic, because now Daniel and I have been doing this for several years, every single one of our expeditions, at the end, we always ask them, what was your favorite day? What did you like best? Not one of them has ever said Machu Picchu was their favorite day. The experience, yeah. I the imagine, experience. is not what it used to be. Correct. Exactly, and it's just right. about the experience. And they all say, like, don't get me wrong, Machu Picchu is a magical place, it's beautiful, but all this is taken away by the hearts of people that are around you. And mm. now, what they have done is they have, like, three small, three circuits that are one way, so once you enter one of the circuits, you cannot backtrack or connect to the other one, so you just have to go around and, like, finish it. And then you, if you want to re-enter or see another area, you have to come out and then re-enter. So it's been monetized so oh, yeah. well, yes. in and out. Yeah. It's, it's literally like a cattle herd. You can't backtrack, you can't, if you miss something or want to go back and take a, a photo, you can't. It, you're literally, once you go into whatever trail you choose out of the three, you can only go that way one direction. So it's, it's a legitimate cattle and herd. And their goal, the administration of Machu Picchu goal is 
to create up to four shifts in one day of between two to two and a half hours each because they say that is enough to see Machu Picchu. Wow, so they're increasing the numbers. They're increasing the numbers, yeah. And you so can't hang probably, out there for the day and just enjoy it. No, no. Remember, we remember like our tours were like, okay, you go with your guide the first day, you know, in the afternoon when you get there and then you get to know the place. And then the second day you go and hang out the whole day and visit the places that you fancy the most. They can up here, you know, like just enjoy it at your own leisure. But now they don't even let you like lay down on the grassy areas. They don't even let you like, you know, come off this narrow paths and like. And it's really funny sad. how they regulate it because they do have a lot of staff in there to make sure that people are behaving appropriately because they did have the issues of people, you know, doing drugs and the naked photos and all this stuff. But they stand there in patrol with whistles. So as the people are going through like all day you're in this like spectacularly beautiful place and you hear like them whistling and like uh, yelling at people and it's just you know oh it's, no that sounds it's like it's not the daniel for you as like a local you have grown up here you would have seen this shift from this pristine place to this now sort of unsustainable situation what does it feel like for you it's really frustrating it's really sad the state of you know politics in general in Peru are so corrupt and corruption is being institutionalized and it's ingrained in the like mentality and how things function at a government level you know but we don't lose hope we we try to keep focusing on the positive and try to enhance the good experiences but at the same time, we warn our clients and the people that we service of the situation. So when you're a little bit aware of that, you can understand better if something arises. At the end of the day, I would say we need a major shift, a change of conscious, a change of how to do things, a change on that mentality of like, oh, I'm empowered and I'm going to take as much advantage as I can for my own gain. It seems like conscious tourists really have a role to play here in helping shift demand and, and get resources spread to where they should be, which actually brings us onto a good point. We're now sitting, let's talk about the Amazon, right? Maybe you can explain exactly where we're sitting and why this place is really special. So right now we are sitting at a lodge that it's located in one of the most unique places in the world. It's one of the most pristine cloud forests, part of uh, the Manu Biosphere Reserve, right next to Manu National Park, one of the largest protected areas in the Peruvian Amazon, and one of the most diverse places on Earth, too. Uh, right now, we are in the transition between the high Andes to the lowlands. It's called the Cloud Forest, and the Cloud Forest is very unique because it's one of the least studied environment in the world, and it's one of the environments that it, like, it's disappearing as fast as other areas, and it's mostly because of the pressure to grow, to grow cacao, coca leaves, and coffee. This is like the prime location to grow those kind of products. And like in places like Colombia and Ecuador, majority of these cloud forests, and even Peru too, majority of these cloud forests is gone. So there's very few places where you can find, you know, like little patches of pristine untouched forest like here in Manu. And that is also very important because those places are the headwaters of the Amazon. 
and protecting and preserving the headwaters is one of our most important tasks because soon freshwater sources are going to be very difficult to find. And when you say headwaters, for those who don't know what that means, what, what is a headwater? A headwater is basically where the watersheds are born and then a hydrological basin is created. So that's all the water that is coming down from the beginning where the, where the rivers, where the streams, the little ravines are born and all this like water is created from the rain, melting glaciers, subterranean water coming out and basically it's like you know this is the beginning of the life cycle where the water comes originates. So because we're so high up in the mountains it's the source of all the water that trickles down into the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. Got Correct. It. And Got this it. here is kind of like the southwestern point of the Amazon basin. So it is kind of like a separate hydrological basin that flows into the Madre de Dios River that goes down to Bolivia into the Madidi River and then Madidi turns back into Brazil turns into the Madeira River and that joins the Amazon by Manaus, more or less, you Jeez, know, halfway so down. It's a massive connection. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, like uh, the Amazon River is one, it's the river that provides with the most fresh water in the world. It provides with drinking water and a lot of water along the way for many people. I didn't realize until we started researching, we were like, you know, the turtle ignorant tourists, we were like, we want to go to the Amazon and we just thought it was Brazil, you know, like you don't realize that you can come to Peru, you can see Machu Picchu if you really must, <laughs> and you can see Umantai and other amazing sites in Cusco and then come to the Amazon, right? Like you can actually drive from Cusco and come and visit the Amazon here. Sarah, maybe you could explain a little bit why we have the opposite problem here in the Manu Biosphere Reserve where people and the, the Manu National Park where people are not visiting. So what's happened in both the Manu National Park and the Biosphere Reserve where we are today is it kind of hit its prime about 10 to 15 years ago when there was a lot of uh, high-end travelers, a lot of biologists, uh, a lot of educated people who were interested in seeing a pristine rainforest. But what's happened is the logistics back then were a lot easier because people would drive in from Cusco, they would go to Atalaya and get a boat and end up in Boca Manu, which they could easily access Manu National Park where you can see the jaguars and like the amazing wildlife in the lowlands. And then at that time, there was an airport located in Boca Manu. So people could then fly back to Cusco and then, you know, on to Lima or whatever international destination uh, they had from there on out, which was um, a lot less expensive and a lot more convenient. And they could do it in a shorter amount of time. So the airport in Boca Manu wasn't really functioning properly. There was massive uh, flight delays and we're not just talking about a few hours it could be one to two days even longer that it started to kind of become problematic they ended up stopping all commercial flights um, in and out of Boca then that really transitioned the Amazon tourists in this region um, instead of coming to Manu they've now kind of been pushed over and are attracted to Tambopata now. Tambopata is another beautiful Amazonian reserve, easily accessible because people can fly from Cusco um, to Puerto Maldonado and then when they're finished they can go from Puerto Maldonado back onto Lima. It's a lot less expensive because the logistics are easier. Tambopata is easy 
from an operator's perspective to sell and to manage because the costs are a lot lower. They're located next to a very large city where they can get their food in and out via boat travel in short distances. Unfortunately, because the tourism in Manu now is a lot less, in the last, I would say, five years, the amount of illegal logging, the amount of illegal mining, even, unfortunately, uh, narco-trafficking um, has now kind of taken a strong foothold in this area. And so it's important to bring tourists back into this area because once the government realizes the profitability of having tourists in this area, that creates more jobs, it creates more agencies and companies um, paying taxes, which benefits the government. All of these different problems could be addressed, but if there's no tourism, unfortunately, these illegal industries are going to continue to to advance and to become more prevalent. And that is absolutely not what we want. And it would be detrimental to one of the most biologically diverse places in the entire world. And I just want to say that we have spent the most wonderful three days with you guys exploring this region. And I just can't understand why tourists aren't into this because yeah, the logistics are a little bit different. <laughs> but. It really feels like you're coming to a wild place and you're really exploring and you're doing that deep travel. That is such a unique thing these days. I mean, most places that you visit as a tourist, you end up getting, you know, as you say, herded through a particular experience, whereas this has been incredibly unique and fun and different. And just that experience of, of hiking through the cloud forest and watching the, you know, the change in the flora and the fauna as you from the from the pygmy forest right till the the lowlands the where the trees, trees are massive. <laughs> and it is the mo it's just we had the, it was absolutely surreal. I just I'm lost for words to describe. And literally walking the through the clouds, right? And we, and we even had lunch in the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> On the and first then, day we had lunch in the clouds. Can and you we also that? rode our bike along the you know along the, the road. road and we were able to see the most incredible river it's just running a, through. Off the beaten track. It's so off the beaten track and it's a super fun, unique experience. We cannot understand why more people <laughs> are not here. Are we've, not here. We've seen three tourists in three days. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually right now for the listeners, we're sitting in this most uh, and actually we should have told you this in the beginning. There's a there's a hum in the background. That's not white noise, that is actually a waterfall. <laughs> and it is just about fifty meters away from this crazy cool lodge. How many people could sleep here? Maybe sixteen people. Sixteen? So. And yeah. there's four of us here. You can tell this this lodge was pretty epic in its heyday. I mean, it's epic now because of this, oh, yeah. the surroundings. But anyway, we could go on like this for hours. <laughs> yeah, we, we better. I, I would just strongly encourage anybody coming to Peru to think about coming here because it really is a different experience. Okay, point closed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to do it with Peru Expeditions. <laughs> <laughs> that too. We'll put, we'll put that link in the show notes. Don't you worry. Oh my God. <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> what I ask you guys one final little segment that we need to cover off is the concept of, of rural tourism and you guys took us to see a village here in the Amazon in the biosphere. Santa um, Rosa de Huacaria. And it was really cool to see people preserving their culture and Sarah you explained to us why this was so important to actually visit these villages and do it in the most responsible and respectful way. Yes exactly um so what's happening to these little villages in the Amazon is actually, again, a global problem that happens, I feel like, with a lot of indigenous communities. 
as in the younger generation, they don't see any viable job opportunities. So in order to go get a better education, to you know, get better job opportunities, a lot of them end up moving to Cusco. Some even go on to Lima. And um, what that does is it destroys the culture because if you don't have anyone there in the villages to perpetuate the old customs, the old traditions, the ancient knowledge, which especially for a region in the Amazon is vital. I mean, you know, just walking through the forest, to them it's not just plants and trees. They all have medicinal purposes and they know what every single plant and tree does for the body. And so much of it has been undocumented and unexplored. Yet these people hold the knowledge to, to all of this really important information. So what these programs do is basically it allows them to make income off of tourists visiting their villages to see their native way of life, which in essence creates this type of cultural preservation where if there's enough job opportunities in and around these villages, then the younger generations will stop going away to Cusco and other locations and stay there and maintain all of this amazing knowledge that has been passed down from generation to generation. Totally. And we got we were lucky enough to speak to Alberto, who's the shaman of this village and was the leader of the village up until recently. President. Right? Yes, until recently, the president. yeah, the president. And his vision for the place was super interesting. And I would encourage anyone to watch the video that we're going to make about this experience, where he explained that he would love to see the jungle return around them, you know, to the same force that it used to be and be able to have his people live off the land like they did in the past, which was mm -hmm. quite special, I thought. Yeah, no, definitely Alberto is uh, a character in the community and then he is really well known and respected. And uh, I have had the experience to like walk with him through the forest and it's just amazing the, the knowledge that he has and he's pulling out roots and making you try and your, your tongue gets numb and then like he has another plan to get rid of that feeling, you know, and then he will start explaining, you know, like this is for women, this is for men and this and that. and. It is just incredible, like Sarah was saying, all that knowledge that is accumulated there and it needs to be shared and passed on and people can really benefit of all of that. And then the communities, uh, they need to incorporate these kind of experiences to open up to the world and have a, an opportunity as well. Yeah, you know, share that with tourism. Yeah, Having tourists come and see that will give value to those places which will hopefully reduce deforestation and narco-trafficking mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Correct. Is that what you guys would say is the key message here? Well, I would definitely say that it's like a synergy of different aspects that will create the ideal conditions for the people here. Tourism is a very good alternative and one of the options that they have. You know, there's so many other things that people can do to enhance their quality of lives. But definitely when tourism is used in the right way, with the right rules and the right setting, you can like create a very positive impact and create change in people. But there is a lot more than tourism that these people can do. You know, there's agroforestry, there's biogardens, and so many other things that they can start creating and have an added value to like their traditional knowledge already. And so I think that it's really important, especially with rural tourism, 
because a lot of times they they create a great communities and you saw the lodge that they built yesterday that's completely vacated a lot of times at these areas even if they're great at the actual on-site operation they might not be that that good at the marketing and the selling of these locations so i think in general the tourism industry here in cusco and local tour operators it's their job to go out and find these different communities who are doing it correctly and then help them sell their product take the tourists there put it on your website just to kind of promote it because i feel like there's kind of been a disconnect between the actual villages and then the selling standpoint so if that can kind of be bridged then i think that they would be able to get even more tourists in which would even further enhance the quality of the program that they're offering what initiatives or innovations would you be like really excited about if fast forward 10 years from now peru had implemented my number one thing that i really would love to see in peru is that at least 25 or 30% of all the income that is generated by the tourist entrance fees to archaeological sites or tourist destinations should be reinvested on making the destinations more accessible, better information, better facilities, improve the parking lots, have infor informational stands, create little trails that can increase the time of stay for the people that visit certain areas like in Aguascalientes or Machu Picchu Pueblo or town you have such a huge potential to do like small little trails where you can have lookouts to Machu Picchu to the mountains little like nature nature hikes you can implement so people can have things to do that would be really nice to see and you know there is certain things that are like for example, the national parks or the natural protected areas, they are like autonomous and they have their own budget and they have their own decision-making processes, but they don't have enough support at a government level to develop other things beyond that little like facelifts that they can do, you know? Like, we need to establish a policy where the reinvestment of all that money that it's acquired through tourism needs to improve also the facilities that are provided for those visitors. And another huge issue in Cusco in particular is the illegal operators. And I, what I would love to see is an actual crackdown of not allowing these people to continue to operate illegally. And I think that that would solve a lot of the problems um, with the impact and the trash problem because unfortunately they're all really extremely budget agencies and it's just money to them. They don't care about the locations they're visiting. Or safety, it sounds or like. It's oh. Exactly. That's key is safety. So at the government level, they need to get more involved and really go in and do a sting and shut them all down. Like like a restart button, right? Like, let, let's just Clean <laughs> stop slate. what we're doing. And from here on out, it's going to be legal. Everything legal. is going to be legal. You yeah. know, I would love to see that. And that uh, not only the small, cheap, unlicensed agencies <laughs> are bad because there's a lot of huge operators that, you know, have renowned names, operate really well-known international accounts, but because they work with high-end clientele and they know that these guests are tipping the guys at the staff really well, they don't pay their staff. So that's Shocking. really, like, really bad because it's not companies that are struggling for money, you know, mm -hmm. it's like... That's just greed. Huh? It's just greed it's just and greed. they're just like utilizing the money to invest in something before they pay their people 
a rightfully earned money, you know, and so that is really frustrating too because that sets precedents and standards that other smaller agencies say, oh, look at these huge companies are doing that. Why can't we do this? Mm. You know, we're smaller, we have more right to do it. And so it just becomes in the norm instead of like trying to be an actual sustainable operator, you know, and, and many of those praise themselves as... Sorry, this is also a really important point that I think needs to be understood globally is that our whole society and the way that we're raised in this really manipulated vision of reality is everything is based on exponential growth. So for example, Daniel and I know several business owners here in Cusco and we've seen them go up and up and up and up and then they've overexpanded and they've hired too many people and they bought all this equipment on credit that they can't afford and then they're not meeting their financial goals and then they've crashed mm. and then they've had to lay people off and then they have to like go down in their quality of service and then they cut corners and then they buy really cheap food you know possibly making people sick because they're buying it at the market it's kind of like this pyramid that's happened and when we created Peru Eco Expeditions it was always based on sustainable growth. And we're not here, we did not form our company to make a profit. We came to change people's lives and we came to show people amazing places. And there is a caring capacity where you have to say no, you have to turn business away, you have to manage what you can manage without overexpanding because that just leads to the detriment of everything your company, your employers, your destinations, your quality of service, everything. So I think what is most important is to just realize what that caring capacity is and stick there and don't go beyond that. I love that. You guys are so <laughs> aspirational. Thank you. Okay, so now we've talked about what you would love to see and I mean that would be fantastic. But you are taking matters into your own hands. In 2018, I wonder if you can explain. I'm actually extremely excited about what we're doing at the end of this year. We've been talking about it for several years and we decided that instead of just talk, we're gonna make it a reality. So after our peak season, um, we're going to open a nonprofit here in Cusco called Evolve Peru. And basically that is going to focus primarily on trash. Unfortunately in Peru and around Cusco, trash has kind of been the elephant in the room that everybody knows is an issue and no one that we know of is really addressing the issue. It's great, like Peru has great uh, nonprofits and NGOs and they do a lot of work with orphans and the people and everything is kind of like humanitarian based. And so we want to kind of just focus on pollution with trash being uh, the number one thing that, that we're going to do. So we're really, really excited about that. That's one of our projects and definitely it's a huge task to take on because before I moved to Hawaii in 2011, the trash problem was not too bad. But now that we came back in 2015, it was really, really out of control and saddening. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus, number one, uh, getting involved like on social media and organizing uh, trash cleanups. But then what we want to progress into doing is to train um, guides and educators to actually go into schools, at like pro most likely the elementary school level, and um, explain to them and do demonstrations about why they shouldn't throw their trash, about why the watersheds are important, um, and the effects that happen to the environment. Because unfortunately, in the school system here they don't really uh they don't really teach that and we think that 
that that's crucial uh, for future generations uh, to have that knowledge of what their impact is on the environment when they do or do not dispose of their trash properly. So that's one of them. And the other one, other project that we have that is really, really exciting to us is we're finally going to have a little piece of heaven in the cloud forest and we're building a unique lodge. And it's very eco-friendly because it's only going to be for four guests. And it's something that we are really looking forward and we are planning to create this little paradise where we can showcase all the things that we can teach the people and they can learn about conservation and all that and not only use it for tourists but to bring the local kids to bring the local community and like share with them that knowledge and spread that consciousness that they need to regain and that connection with nature that needs to happen in a different level because even if the kids that live here in the rainforest they are used to certain ways because those are just the standards and that's how they know it and uh, if you think before like the western world came there was not really trash for them everything was natural and everything was biodegradable so they're just used to throw it in out there and then it becomes part of nature again so it's that kind of foreign concept with these different things that got introduced to them that they need to learn and understand that they are not part of nature anymore and they need a special treatment and all that. Definitely that's going to help us and give us the tools and the right setting to actually create that connection again. Very cool. And what I love about that little parcel of land is you guys chose that based on the tree, <laughs> which we were lucky enough to see We yesterday. saw the tree, and, is, and, they've, and they've got a waterfall. And the waterfall is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It really is a little piece of heaven. That is the right way to describe it. So thank you. All the best for that, guys. I'm really excited to so see much. how that plays out. It's going to be You epic. have to come back and see We're just going to uh, have to come back. Yeah. We absolutely will. I was going to say. Yeah. In the meantime, send us photos. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. So definitely. two more questions very quickly. We always ask at the end of the podcast, what sort of advice, any advice you can think of, tips, tricks, hacks for folks out there who want to build a more sustainable life or, or want to be more of a conscious consumer? I think that, for example, just as we are having a mag right now, it's so eco-friendly because instead of going to a cafe shop, a coffee shop and buying like a to-go cup, you can bring your own cup and that will save a lot of trees and it tastes better. And it tastes <laughs> so much better. <laughs> Bringing a bottle to drink water and have, you know, refillable bottles in your daily life. You don't, if you think that every day you buy a plastic bottle, just imagine how many you're going to have in the back of your room at the end of your life. But having a refillable bottle, it just simple things that can create that change are very, very important. And being conscious is the most important thing, you know, like what you choose and what you select as your standards of life are what really makes a difference. What I love about this whole sustainability movement that's happening is it's really bringing everyone back to the basics. You know, it's very simplified and it's very easy to be sustainable. You know, it's just simple things like consume less water in your homes, take shorter showers, you know, like have, have a bio garden on your roof. Um, very easy to, to make and create, grow your own food. And the food that you do purchase, you know, always buy locally, support your, your local businesses. There's little things in everyone's life that we can do to make everyone else's life so much better. And it's really coming together 
as a community. I think what's happened is capitalism is very individualistic. Everything is private, everyone is on their own, they're in their own little bubbles. And I think that with part of sustainability, it really is bringing that sense of community for the greater good back together. Where can people find you guys? Peru Eco Expeditions can be found um, on our website at www.peruecoexpeditions.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, as well as Pinterest as Peru Eco Expeditions. Okay, great. We'll put all those links in the show notes for all you listeners out there. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for coming. We have loved spending time with you guys, and we love your vision of what you're doing. Thank you so much for choosing Peru Eco Expeditions for this experience in Peru. And we try to showcase a little bit of like a beautiful country, but also being completely honest with you guys, brutally honest and yeah, telling maybe. you what is actually the issues in Peru. And hopefully that will get the word out there and then more will make more travelers conscious. Appreciate the brutal honesty. I think that's absolutely crucial. We all need to start talking honestly and openly about what's going on in the world. So that is the first step. So thank you guys. But now we are biking down to- Into the sacred valley. Into the sacred valley. Yes. So. Let's so go. We got to get out of here. Do it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to that episode with Sarah and Daniel. We're so impressed with their initiative, drive and passion. We also found this a timely reminder to be respectful, conscious tourists who are thoughtful about where we direct our tourist dollars. Curious, what did you get out of this episode? We'd love to know. Send us a note at hello at sustainablejungle.com or catch us on all the major socials.